Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to Call of Discovery, a celebration of Keyforge, of its community, and the excitement of Discovery. I am still somehow here as your host, Ed Pocock, and today I am joined by one of the brightest brains in Keyforge, James Aronson. James, great to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. And today we are going to be covering something that affects every single Keyforge player out there. That is luck and skill. Is Keyforge entirely a skill-based game or entirely a luck-based game? We will find out in our discussion later on. But first of all, we do like to ask our guests a few questions and get to know them. So James, tell us a bit about how you got into Keyforge and maybe even games more generally. Um, so, I mean, like most people, I've played games like Magic in the past. <gasps> Blasphemy! Well, like <laughs> what, one or two people. Uh, so I've I played Magic when I was much younger. I yeah. didn't really play for very long. Um, and then more recently, I sort of joined a board game club at my university where so we play sort of board games every week mm -hmm. and I've sort of became keen and sort of researched my own board games and at some point I saw a cool card game go yeah. on the market and that was Android Netrunner ah. so I, I really like Android Netrunner um, my least favorite thing about Android Netrunner is basically that you have to build decks which I'm neither good at nor particularly enjoy so that's why when I saw Keyforge which is sort of a card game where you have your own deck, but you don't have to build it. I was sort of excited, and then I got into Keyforge, or I I got went to the shop, got a couple of decks, played them on the Crucible, had fun, and uh, a year later, I'm still playing. I can I can empathise with that very much as. Actually, deck building is probably one of my least favourite aspects of some of the other games I play as well. I love the fact with Keyforge, you just get straight into the mix of it. And for Keyforge, what really kept you with the game? Uh, you've been quite involved in everything that's been going on in the UK. I didn't really expect this to be the case so much, but I really like playing Sealed because sort of you, you get a deck which sort of no one's ever seen before and it's sort of not amazing and not terrible most of the time. So, And you have to work with the, the tools that you're given yeah. to the tools make you're the given most of it. And the cards that you sometimes draw and sometimes are at the bottom of your deck. And we're going to be diving into that a little bit in our next episode. It is going to be the first in a new, somewhat regular series of deck exploration episodes where we 
really dive into the uncharted waters of discovery, which we like to do very much in this podcast, and open a deck on the show and get James and similar Keyforge sealed minds together to uh, work out you know, how to make the best of those tools that you're given. James, do you play any other games in addition to Keyforge or is Keyforge the main deal? So Keyforge is the only sort of lifestyle game that I play. Uh, so I play like, I play lots of board games that are sort of the sort of thing that you would play on a board games evening. Um, so one of my favourite games is Seasons, which I don't think there are too many people who sort of are competitive Seasons players yeah. who sort of collect all the cards. And sort of there, there are a lot of games like that, uh, which I play when I play board games. Yeah. But Keyforge is the only sort of game that I really sort of have dived into and i think it is important isn't it to play different games because you get to see those mechanics operating in different ways in different games and it probably comes back and makes you a better keyforge player absolutely i also think it's sort of it can be easy to get burnt out if you're just playing keyforge yeah yeah. so it's nice to sort of have other things to to switch to from time to time absolutely and it goes back to that deck building area there of yeah with Keyforge, you you get a new set once every six months and you don't need to be that involved with the game. You don't Absolutely. need to be that involved with the meta and everything that's happening to actually get stuck in and, and do, do okay in tournaments. Um, but having said that, you have done consistently very well in, in particular, sealed tournaments. And uh, I wouldn't say consistently. Okay, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, you're often seen on the top table. We'll put it that way. Uh, sometimes. And maybe you can talk a bit about your experience in Krakow because you were the the sealed Voltor runner-up there. Yeah, so I, well, I, I went to Krakow partially because there were two Voltors and so I thought, oh, well, this is probably better value for money. And also there was there was a good group of people from london going which i was oh, looking forward to oh you flatter me <laughs> yeah, including, including you of course and um so the we started with the sealed vault tour and i opened my decks and yeah. i think i my first deck that i looked at which is the one i uh, ended up playing had four archimedes and this was before the rules changed so at this point if you have an archimedes which says its neighbors gain when they're destroyed, you archive them instead of putting them in the bin. So uh, at this point, if a neighbour is archived, now that Archimedes has a new neighbour which gets yeah. archived, and then a new neighbour which gets archived, so it's the whole battle line. Yeah. So Archimedes was quite good back then. Archimedes was Captain Danger and at the time. Exactly. Yeah. And so along with that, there were some really good play effects in Snecklifter, which steals an artefact. Mm-hmm. So if I can play it next to an Archimedes, steal an artefact, and then archive it to play it again. Throughout the tournament, I managed to steal about five Lash of Broken Dreams. Wow. Which is quite rude. Um, and I also had a Desania, which gets rid of the opponent's whole archive and gives you amber for each card that you got rid of. So really damaging some of those Logos, so other Logos There are decks lots of Logos decks with lots mm. of archiving. And I I think one of the games I managed to hit five cards from my opponent. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Which was 
quite fun for me. Yeah, not less for, fun for them. Not for my opponent. And uh, you, your your final match, speak a bit about how that played out. What I probably should have said earlier is that the other thing in my deck is a Grunt Buggy. So Grunt Buggy is a card which basically makes both players' key costs go up by one yeah. for each. So if I have a creature which is five or more power, then your key cost goes up by one. And I had about eight or nine creatures with five or, five or more power. So the Grunt Buggy was really good. And until the final, I played against no Grunt Buggies. Oh, sorry, played against no artifacts. So my opponents had no way to get rid of the Grunt Buggy. Yeah. And in the final, my opponent had a Neutron Shark, which uh, he was recurring with Archimedes, yes. not to mention the Time Traveller, which could also recur everything uh, with the help from Future Self. And there was also a Poltergeist, which can destroy artifacts. So it had a number of options and ways of negating So, that So the Grunt Buggy threat. was basically dead. Yeah. And I think... Part of the reason why I got to the uh, got to the final is because I got fairly fortunate mm. not to have to face any artifact control. So perhaps it perhaps it could be just summed up as my deck sort of went further than it should have done should have gone because I had favorable favorable matchups. Okay, okay, and we'll talk about that fortune in our <laughs> luck and skill segment. Um, yes. But diving into that a little bit for now, Grump Buggy, I'm really interested, is a card that has come under fire a little bit in the competitive arena in, in some other in some other Keyforge-related discussions. People saying, oh, no, I'm not touching that card because the likelihood that I, I go to time with my games is too high and I don't want to do that. So what is your take on that? So obviously, if it's sealed, you don't have much choice of whether it's it. So I guess in a Vault Tour, there are three decks to choose from. So I could have chosen a different deck. I could have chosen... One of my decks had a Soul Snatch, which is obviously going to make the game go faster because sort of it, it brings more amber into the game. But also, I play very quickly. I mean, that's bitten me in the past when I've sort of... Sort of dun-dun-dun. Uh, I end my turn, and then I realise sort of five seconds later, oh, I should have used my whatever it was as well. When James says he plays quickly, he means quickly. I, I remember a time that it was actually one of the first tournaments I'd ever gone to. It was a local chain bound and I, I came up against James and uh, I was I was slow. Um, I was still working out how the game worked, how to play the game and uh, my, my card game experience isn't extensive and at the time was much less so. And... Uh, I'd pass the turn over to James and within about five seconds there'd be a flash and he'd be finished and the the pressure would be back on me I really I really certainly felt that pressure but it was it was a fascinating way and I don't think I've seen anyone play quite as quickly as you do uh I'm sure that there are people who play as quickly as I do um I, I think maybe you're exaggerating a bit. Perhaps. And maybe... A little bit of dramatic effect ma- never hurts anyone. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I drew lots of, uh, lots of hands with lots of cards of the same house, mm. which meant I was playing more quick, or which meant that I didn't need as many turns to win that particular game. Perhaps. Perhaps. Per- perhaps. Yeah. It certainly is a skill, I think, to be able to really have that kind of grasp and knowledge of 
what moves you're going to take in that certainty, which I, I, I suppose reflects your understanding of the cardboard. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes the other way. So if I, I remember a game when I was playing against someone who was playing incredibly slowly. Yeah. And so I think I remember towards the end of the game... That wasn't me, was that, it? That wasn't you. Are, you, are, we, are we sure? <laughs> uh, I, I, I am sure. I, I know who it was. Okay. But I'm not going to say on the podcast. Yeah, we don't know. Names. Um, uh, so tw- towards the end of the game, about f- halfway through my opponent's turn, I I saw his ga- gauntlet of command and thought, oh, I have a Gormavom, which is an uh, which is an artifact with an omni ability to destroy yep. an opponent's artifact. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I have to use the Gormavom this turn. Um, then about three or four minutes later, it was my turn, and I'd completely forgotten that I meant to do that. Interesting. I ended my turn. Ten seconds later, I thought, oh, I need to use my... I should have used my Gormaform, and he proceeded to play a Groke and fight and get rid of the Amber that I was going to use to win the game. So there we go. Listeners, if you're ever up against James, stall the game, and uh, and maybe maybe he'll forget what his master plan was. Please don't. <laughs> Diving in a little bit more to other factors of Keyforge, do you have a favourite house, James? At the moment, I absolutely do, and it's absolutely Star Alliance. Okay. I really like the shenanigans you can pull off. Yes, with. yeah. So you can use Kirby, who lets you play cards from out of house, and yeah. Grey, who lets you archive cards from out of house, yeah. to sort of get through your deck faster. And not only do these abilities come into play when you play the cards, but they also come into play when you use the cards the next turn. So you can sort of, you don't really get punished for calling Star Alliance a lot if you have these sorts of cards. And then you have incredibly powerful effects like Medic Ingram, which wards creatures when you play or use her. And uh, I didn't even realise this before it bit me when I realised she actually heals the creatures as well. So, So for example you can sort of fight with a creature and then the next turn heal her, heal the creature with Medic Ingram and also ward it. So and you can continue. plan to do that. So it yeah. makes it really hard to kill creatures. Um, and one of my favourite cards to, in Star Alliance is Helmsman Spears, which mm. if you if you get one reap with Helmsman Spears, you can discard your whole hand and draw six more, or draw cards equal to the number of cards you discarded, which basically means if you play Helmsman Spears... Then the next turn you can just call Star Alliance again. Even if you don't have any Star Alliance cards in your hand, you can you'll probably get a few more when you draw them. And I think Brad's spoken a little bit about Star Alliance being to the board what Logos is to the hand, as Star Alliance being something that allows you to manage your board more effectively, more uh, have a bit more control over the flexibility of it. But I'm I'm interested in you saying this, uh, calling Star Alliance over and over again, and this is something that I've found certainly playing Star Alliance as well, as you get an engine with it, you build an engine, and but I have found that the allure of calling on that engine time after time it's knowing when to stop calling on it that can quite often win you a game or prevent you from losing a game because despite star alliance playing quite well with other houses it is you know the opposite of mars in that respect that it plays really well with other houses it can often be tempting just to call star alliance and ultimately your engine's going to run out of steam at some point absolutely so i i agree with that but i guess one of the things about Star Alliance is that you don't get punished for doing that as much as you might do with another house. So say you have a big Brobnar house mm-hmm. and maybe you play four Brobnar creatures. Then the next turn, maybe you have one Brobnar card in hand 
and you can use the four Brognar creatures, and that was fine, but also you're not really drawing many cards. But if it were Star Alliance instead, then maybe you have four Star Alliance creatures, and maybe you got some benefits. So maybe you yeah. played a Medic Ingram and you also got a free ward, or maybe you played an Information Officer Grey and you got to archive a card, and then the next turn you get to use them, and maybe you only have one Star Alliance card in hand, mm. but also you get to archive another one with the Information Officer Grey that you haven't played. So you're yeah. actually not really sacrificing the card draw to no. use your board, which is part of the reason why I think it's so uh, so enticing to call star alliance again because they don't really punish your draw whereas other houses tend to do so certainly not so much as as many other houses indeed and we share that as well james star alliance is also by far my favorite house in the game not just from that the way they play i love the way they play but i also love the theme of the house the law that's gone into it the fact that you know they've started laying the paving stones for this from the very first set oh yeah so i i really like the theme of cards like special agent fingers which is basically a uh, shadows elf which has been which is sort of actually in the Star Alliance team because that's what the Star Alliance does. They sort of take the best and brightest from all the other houses. James, is there any one Keyforge card that you really don't like playing against? Or maybe you don't uh, like playing? Anything that's yes, awkward, irritating? Um, I, I've spent a lot of time complaining about how I very much dislike Heart of the Forest. Okay. Basically because... There are a lot of decks which basically say, if I have Heart of the Forest and you don't have art Artifact Control, then I will win. Because So you play Heart of the Forest, which says, if if you have more keys than me, you just can't forge keys. So maybe maybe I have deck with Heart of the Forest, which, okay, I play Heart of the Forest, uh, and then you have no Artifact Control, you have no way to get rid of Heart of the Forest... So you can't win. And then at some point, I'll do some sort of a combo, which the best heart of the forest decks have these sorts of combos, um, which will just give me the win in one turn. So very much locks a lot of decks out of the game. Exactly, exactly. And I, I have a strange relationship with Heart of the Forest, James, because it was responsible for my worst ever game of Keyforge, but whereby my opponent had a heart of the forest, um, the sting combo, and uh, the game essentially would have just gone on for an hour and a half of exactly. seeing what happened. And then at the end, maybe one person wins because of what they've got in hand. But, you know, it, it is how many tricks you've got, at which point I just said, no, I can't. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I can't play this game. Uh, you know, the, that infuriating so going through that 90 minutes would have been too much. However... On the flip side, the the adventurer of kind of the discovery side of my brain absolutely loves the fact that Heart of the Forest exists, and I just gave the answer that it was one of my favourite cards in a in a recent interview that I was in. So uh, it's it's a really fascinating card, but I, I I agree with you that to an extent there's challenges with it based around the the answers that there are currently in the game to artifact. Yeah. I I would have preferred the card if. So the way I see it, Heart of the Forest says, if such and such condition is true, you can't play Keyforged. Mm. And what I prefer is, if such and such condition is true, playing Keyforge is a lot harder. So maybe if it had said, if you have more keys than your opponent, then you have to pay 10 extra amber to forge a key, which yeah. 
basically, it doesn't lock you out of the game completely, but it just makes the game a lot harder. I don't like having to say that Heart of the Forest is okay because artifact control exists, because I don't like the idea of certain cards imposing conditions on what decks you have to bring. Yeah. So uh, I think one of the joys of Keyforge is that any deck can play against any other deck, and maybe some decks will be... Sometimes you'll have like an 80% chance to win a matchup, or you can win a matchup if you're much much more skilled than the opponent. It certainly limits options. If the card says, if I have this in your deck and you don't have that in your deck, then I win, I I think that's sort of... I I don't like those sorts of restrictions on the meta if that makes sense yeah no that absolutely does make sense and i'm excited and interested into where they'll kind of take these kind of cards in the future ultimately we haven't seen heart of the forest making too many big splashes at the top of tournaments so the extent to which it's a kind of problem i'm not sure at the moment i did recently open a Double Heart of the Forest Brig deck, um, Binate Rupture, Interdimensional Graft combo, which I am really looking forward to taking to a Chainbound. However, I will not be taking it to any kind of casual night whatsoever because I don't want to ruin people's experience of Keyforge. Um, In fact, I'm heavily invested into making sure people do have a good experience of Keyforge. Yeah, absolutely. See, See what you mean. So you've been quite involved in a lot of the Keyforge tournaments that we've had so far. If there's anything that you could see in the future of organised play, what would that be? Um, I'd like to see more adaptive tournaments. Okay. Or formats like formats like adaptive, which sort of mitigate against the fact that sometimes one deck is much better than the other deck. Sure. So certain that there's sort of some debate about how good adaptive is at that. But it, it is the case that sometimes sometimes you go to a tournament mm. or a sealed tournament and you open three Brobnar decks and your opponent opens three Saurian decks. Okay. And what are your thoughts on that? Let's let's just let's just cover that briefly because it's, it's been a source of discussion in the community recently. And um, I mean, where I lie on that is I've had decks, that, uh, Brobnar decks in a sealed environment that have done pretty well because they've had the right cards and the right answers. But I've also had Brobnar decks that have not given me many answers. So I think... When people say that one house is good or bad, I think it's important to distinguish whether you mean this house is usually really good or this house can be amazing if you get the right lineup. So obviously any house can be amazing if you get the right lineup. Yeah. But I think maybe for a house like Star Alliance, just so many of the creatures at common level are really good and you're happy to see them. And there aren't really too many, or there isn't too much strain on sort of you need this and this and this and this for your house to be good. Whereas with a house like Brobnar, at least in Worlds Collide, maybe you'll have a deck with creatures like Narp and Gron Ninetoes, which don't do a huge amount. And you'll have cards like Volcano, which does four damage to each creature and gives you inexplicably two chains. Yeah. Which. Uh, against the Saurians, it makes a small dent, but not much. And the negative Absolutely. to you is, is quite significant. Yeah, so uh, 
at a recent tournament, my Brobnar deck had in World Collide had four Grokes, which is quite good because so Grok is the creature which when it when it fights it destroys one of your opponent's Amber, which is quite useful. Yeah, but so often you just have a bunch of action cards which don't really do very much, and I think my I think maybe in Untamed in Age of Ascension I had the similar viewpoint so you can have really good decks if you have lots of cards like mimicry and nature's cool or you can have decks filled with hippos trees and squirrels and there's nothing wrong with squirrels but i'm really interested in the tree side of things because the tree's been reprinted in in worlds collide as well but it's got a number of options those upgrades that you can can append to it that actually make it quite a quite an interesting card why are you in particular keen that there are more adaptive style events seen in organized play? So I suppose I really like sealed and sometimes or often in sealed just having a big having a much better deck is a much big bigger advantage. Yeah. So I I would like to see sort of more adaptive for that reason because it means that having a good deck at the start just doesn't rule you out from the tournament. Sure. So I recently went to the Grand Championship in Sweden, yeah. which was the sealed adaptive format. And uh, I found that sort of more than any other tournament I've been to previously, I could identify why I lost each of the games that I lost mm. or each of the matches that I lost mm. because of mistakes that I'd done, which I really appreciated. Yeah. The Worlds is going to be a team event, but I'm not sure what, what format that's going to be within that. I, for one, am super excited about Vault Warrior, not because of the competitive side. Um, that that sort of thing is, is is secondary to me, but actually because I want to see what some of these different formats are like when the meta is just one set. And seeing Adaptive play out in in at the the kind of highest level there i'm looking forward to seeing what surprises and what changes that brings to keyforge i think it's also very interesting because for something like the vault warrior particularly the vault warrior championship the grand prize is a very large amount of money compared to all the other keyforge prize support we've seen in the past really tasty amount of money so so there's a lot of incentive for people to sort of get really good at the adaptive format and i I personally think that with the adaptive format, the benefit you get from practicing is a lot higher than in other formats. So yeah. I think maybe in Archon Solo, there's a lot of diminishing returns. So you practice for 20 games with your deck and then you get good with it and then you practice for 100 more games and you don't get, you probably don't get as much benefit depending on the deck and we're very very closely moving on to a luck versus skill conversation here Maybe. of which formats are are more luck and skill orientated so let's move now into into that focus conversation that main segment and i think to to begin with it's important for us to say why are we having this conversation around luck and skill and this is something that players are have different views on i think it's fair to say certainly we've heard in various different keyforge content some people have very different views on this one content creator said now if you have enough skill as a player then it's very very likely you're going to make top cut consistently whereas i think others 
constantly talk about the the amount of skill uh, the amount of luck involved in keyforge whether you got a lucky draw whether you were unlucky with the game people saying ah oh, my opponent was just really lucky to draw that card at the right time so it's going to be really interesting i think to to dive into this and also what are people's connotations of these things what is luck and skill and what do pe- how do people feel about these words do people feel a win is more earned if they consider it to be skill based or do people see a win as less important or you know less reflecting on the player if it's more luck based or if they perceive it to be more luck based so we're going to set out and we're going to talk about this now and discover really is is keyforger luck or a skill based game so james what connotations do you think luck and skill come with on the the first thing you might think of is luck is maybe I played a Merkins and my Merkins played my opponent's Pit Lord, which yeah. says I now have to call House Dis. Basically, I really didn't want to be playing that Pit Lord, and now I'm probably going to lose. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's the that's, I guess, the obvious luck thing, or maybe the poster child for luck is Wild Wormhole, which just plays the top card of your deck. And yep. sometimes it's a... Key hammer. Sometimes it's a key hammer, which gives your opponent six amber. And sometimes it's a key charge, which wins you the game on the spot. Yeah. So uh, I guess that's the obvious thing. But I think... So a lot of the discussion that I've seen online about luck is... Our Keyforge has a lot less luck than Magic, because in Magic, sometimes you draw seven lands in your opening hand, which means that you can't really do anything. Whereas in Keyforge, sort of cards have no costs. So whatever whatever you draw, you'll be able to play whatever's in your hand. And of course, that's true, but it's also not true because if I draw a hand with two cards of each house and you draw a hand with four Logos cards, then my first turn will be playing two cards and yours will be playing four which means you're going to be drawing twice as many cards as I am. So I think that's the first thing that I think of when I think luck in Keyforge, because everyone has three different houses, and sometimes your three different houses come all together, and sometimes you have lots of one house before the other house. And it's it can sometimes be hard to control which house you're or which of those two situations you're in. Yeah, absolutely. Richard Garfield, this is an area that Richard Garfield has spoken extensively about. In the links below, you will find a link to a podcast for the Board Game Design Lab, which Richard Garfield did on this subject. And Richard has some really interesting views on luck and skill and the reasons why he incorporates luck into his game. So He talks about contrasting things like tic-tac-toe, which has very low luck and skill, to uh, things like chess, which has a much higher skill base, a much lower luck base, and then things like some certain games that have pretty much all luck and the reasons why they're all needed and wanted. Where Richard maybe deviates here is he talks about different elements of luck and certain elements of luck arising from player understanding or lack of player complete knowledge. For instance, Richard says, actually, there is a lot of luck in chess because if a player 
doesn't have perfect knowledge and looks at board and there's eight options and one of them is going to win them the game if they choose that option and have no understanding that goes behind that option then that is a luck-based maneuver so really interesting looking at those different elements of luck there he talks about why including luck in a game actually brings in an element of surprise, an element of drama, and almost an element of real-life drama. There's, of course, a lot of randomness in, in real life that we deal with every single day and things that are beyond our control. So incorporating those to a certain extent into a game keeps it fresh. But he Absolutely. also talks about the benefit for newer players of luck-based manoeuvres, the fact that if a game was entirely skill-based... And the most skillful player won every time. The example I think he gives is sprinting here, where if you're sprinting, you're you're the fastest person is just going to win. Unless yes. there are, if there is a control environment where everyone has the same environment, it is going to be purely skill-based. But whereas Keyforge, with those luck-based areas allow, actually, even if you're not the best player, those luck-based things allow those those huge, great, big turnarounds. Maybe those dramatic, dramatic turns there. Someone might come from behind and win the game, and those really create those memorable moments that we like to talk about here on Call of Discovery. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I probably wouldn't be playing Keyforge if it were if there was no luck or randomness at all. So I, I, I think it definitely adds sort of the flavour, which basically makes the game fun. But at the same time, it's not going to be the same. The game isn't going to be the same every time. Bringing it back to the start of, of, of our section where we mentioned, do you agree with the view that actually you're going to make top cut pretty consistently at a vault or if you are a very skilled player? Or do you think that the, the extent of luck in Keyforge precludes that from being a kind of consistent so measure? For the, the first thing I would say is... Uh, I don't agree with that statement. But I guess it depends. What do you mean by cons- by you can make the top cut consistently? And what do you mean by if you're a very good player? So you can imagine a vault tour where maybe a quarter of the pool is very good players. And at a vault tour, typically about 10% make the top cut. So in that situation, a lot of the very good players aren't going to be making the top cut. Um, but maybe you, you'll say consistent, consistently means uh, make the top cut 60% of the time. Yeah. And maybe you'll have a really restrictive definition of very good players. But I, th- I, I personally think that there is enough opportunity to be unfortunate that means even the best players can miss out on the top cut. So I guess one example is in sealed if you get a really if you get a really bad or you get three really bad decks then you're in trouble if you so if you lose two games out of your six games then making the top cut you can't make the top cut yeah so maybe you lost one game because you were unfortunate enough to play against an opponent whose deck sort of counters yours and you lost another game because you had a slow start with lots of two two twos, and your opponent had a fast start with six zero zero two 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 hellscape that you exactly. spoke about earlier. So if if your starting hand has six cards of the same house, 
then you're almost certainly going to win the game. Partially because once you've played those six cards, then the rest, the other 30 cards in your deck are very biased in favour of the other two houses. Sure. So you're now less likely to be stuck in 2-2-2 hell again. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about the elements of luck in different variants for Keyforge and the ways in which you can mitigate elements of that luck to provide yourself with the most consistent opportunities of doing well. But first of all, let's dive into those types of luck. And I've seen it put that there are three broad types of luck in a game. And one of those is the mechanical style. So whether it be a card draw or a dice roll, that is an element of luck that is ever present in Keyforge and very much baked into the game. The second type of luck is very much based around hidden information and things that you don't know that are ever present in the game. And that definitely relates to number one there with card draw and where are certain cards in the opponent's deck. But it also relates to things like simultaneous decision making, such as before you go to an event, even yeah, making the right decision based on the meta to give yourself the Which best chances of doing well. Yeah, absolutely. Which deck you want to bring. And then number three, the type three is more more vague it's the heuristic it's the behavior based luck that goes into a game it is if i make this decision now it's thinking through the number of chains and what is your opponent going to do what game plan do they have how is this going to influence things in untold ways on the board in five or six turns time? so you mean luck based on the fact that you don't know what decisions your opponent is going to make yeah, absolutely. But also, you don't know what cards you're going to draw. All of these areas are very much intermixed, but it's an interesting way of cutting it up to, to kind of have a more of a bite-sized conversation around it, certainly. The Type 3, for me, has been much more pertinent in Set 3. I find that because of the complexity of Worlds Collide and the complexity of the cards and some of the card interactions with one another and also the complexity of board state any one time. Really, those decisions that you make early on in the game can have some very, very interesting, so, so can have some surprising influences and impacts on the game later down the line. When you mentioned the Type 2 luck, the thing that first comes to mind is in Sealed, particularly Sealed Solo, you don't know what's in your opponent's deck. So in Archon Solo, um, the decision, do I want to go up to 10 Amber, is I know my opponent has too much to protect. They probably have too much to protect in hand, so I don't want to go up to 10 Amber because they'll steal four of, they'll steal four of it because that's what too much to protect does. Type 2 luck is I don't know if my opponent has... The, my opponent has the hidden information of do they have too much to protect in hand, Um but there's quite a good chance that they do, and I don't really want to risk it. Yeah. Uh, in Sealed, it's different, because I know you have Shadows in your deck. I don't know whether or Too Much Protect is there or not. I know Too Much Protect is an uncommon, so I think it mean, that means there is, uh, there's a 16% chance that it's in your deck. Okay. Which is pretty low. So chances are stopping at 7 Amber rather than going up to 10 yeah. isn't the right decision. However, then you play the too much to protect. I had no way to know that you had it. So from my point of view, I lost the game because you were lucky enough to have too much to protect in your deck. A really interesting one of this was a recent prime in, in Berlin, Shapsation, 
Andrew uh, got a uh, a deck with three too much to protect in it in a sealed environment. Yes. And the look on the opponent's face when he played the third uh, too much to protect was was always quite something to behold. My personal approach is I will never play around too much to protect in sealed unless my opponent's very strongly telegraphing the fact that they have it, such as by by having a turn where they play Miasma and nothing else, or if I'm really winning and too much protect is they're only out. Yeah. But I think most of the time, I think it's probably right not to play around uncommon cards like that. Okay, interesting. But then, of course, when you do get hit by the too much protect, you were unlucky. Yes. Or it, it it definitely feels that way. An element of luck has been been driven into the game because you've made a risk-based decision based on your understanding of the, the likelihood and the probability of this being in the place. So, James, to what extent do you think Archon is a luck-based format? Okay. So I think there are two questions here. So one question is, how much luck is there in the fact that Keyforged is a game which revolves around opening decks in boxes. So sometimes your deck will, or sometimes you will have a really good deck in your collection, and sometimes you will have lots of really good decks in your collection, Yeah. and sometimes you won't really have any. The tools you have to pick from. The tools you have to pick from. So, And also some people have a different approach to, I never want to buy open decks from anyone, and yeah. I, some people have, oh, I have no qualms about paying $10,000. I mean, I realize that there aren't any decks that are selling for $10,000, but um, <laughs> I, I'm sure if you... Well, we're future-proofing ourselves here by saying... Yeah. I'm sure if you went, if you were incredible, if Jeff Bezos decided to... Get well, into Keyforge. Get into Keyforge. He could yeah. buy any deck he wanted from anyone he wanted. Jeff, if you're listening, I've got some great decks in my collection and you're you're more than welcome Really good prices. One person might say, ah, such and such person was skillful enough to choose a really good deck from their collection. Another person might say, ah, such and such a person was lucky to have that deck in their collection to to start with. Yeah. So I think this is a philosophical issue, which I, I, I don't think either side is correct, and I don't think either side is incorrect. And to what extent do you think you can mitigate the luck elements in Archon by taking a deck that you consider to be, if you have it in your collection anyway, more consistent. And what I mean by that is a deck that you're more consistently going to see the cards you want. It's maybe got better efficiency. And also by taking into account that decision of what does the meta look like and is there any way in which I can flank the meta to work out how to win? So I think... This is my opinion, but I think in Keyforge, the meta is a lot less um, is a lot less homogeneous than in games where you get to build your own deck. Yeah, because in another game, maybe there's one really, really good deck that someone's posted a list of online, and mm-hmm. then everyone's going to, or a lot of people are going to build decks along, or, or even just copy that particular deck. But so so you can sort of it's a lot easier to decide. Oh, lots of people are going to be bringing this sort of deck. Yeah. So the, the second aspect to your question is: so Archon is different to Sealed in that you can see your opponent's deck list. So the question: do they have too much to protect in hand? Has changed from in Sealed 
Do they have too much to protect in hand? I have no idea if they have it in their deck. So it's unlikely they even have it in their deck. So they probably don't have it in their hand. And it's now become, do they have too much to protect in their hand? Well, they have it in their deck. They've gone through about, they have about 20 cards in their discard pile. So there's about a one in three chance that it's in their hand and maybe even higher because they may have archived it earlier or maybe they saved it uh, or maybe they held it back because they know that I have five dust pixies in my yeah. deck. I, I think it's sort of, it, it, it becomes quite hard because in Sealed, it's quite easy to say, don't play around too much to protect. They probably don't have it and you'll probably lose if you're, you waste your time worrying about it. In Archon, um, it, it becomes quite important to decide I could have my five dust pixie turn now hoping that they don't have too much protect or I could sort of save the dust pixies but then they've saved their too much protect and they're also more likely to have it because they'll have drawn more cards by then so the amount of knowledge the amount of information that's available to you is increased and therefore it's increased which which pushes the it, it makes decisions less biased so the, the decision in Sealed is very biased in one way. It's not 50-50 chance of one decision being correct. It's sort of a 90-10 chance. Sort it's of thing. the chance that someone has it in their hand, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And moving on to Sealed now, do you consider Sealed to be more or less skillful a format than Archon? Uh so my answer to your question is no, I do not consider it to be a more or less skillful format. Okay. I think the skill is different. So obviously in Archon, you can be really good because you have a really good deck and you've played it a thousand times. Uh, so you have a really good intuition of what decisions to make in certain situations. Yeah. Whereas in Sealed, maybe you've only seen some of the cards once or twice before. If you're at a vault tour, you're given three decks, and sometimes it will be a hard choice of which deck to choose from. So the fact that players can't buy the a definitively extremely good deck for sealed and take it, do you feel puts a bigger emphasis on player skill, or do you think that the think, the skill luck conundrum is just I very th- different? I think it's just very different. So in Archon, have it having a deck that's really good may mean you were lucky to open it, may mean you were skillful enough to find it, may mean you were you happen to have large amounts of money from creating a global business empire, which you can use to Oh Jeff. <laughs> you and your keyforge obsession. <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, whereas in Sealed, you may have been lucky to open a deck with three time travellers yeah. in it. Or you may have... Oh, I'd like that. <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, you may have been skillful enough to choose a slightly better deck from three similar options. Sure. And as for Adaptive, James, you've mentioned that it's one of your favourite formats in Keyforge. To what extent do you think this is maybe more skill-based than some of the other formats? If you go from Archon Best of 1 to Archon Best of 3, sure. you're obviously reducing the well, you're presumably reducing the luck involved because if I am if I have a 75% chance of winning one game, then you'll have a... Closer to 90. Well, not... I think it's closer to... It's just over 80, actually. Okay. But you'll have a slightly higher chance of winning. It's a particularly important in adaptive, particularly sealed adaptive, to watch 
how lucky you were during the game, during the first two games, if you get to the chain bidding. So if I know I won game one because I drew, I started out with four cards of one house and just kept drawing loads of cards of the same house, then I probably will not bid as many chains on that deck as I would if I'd been unlucky and still won because the deck is so good. So a knowledge of what's more luck-based and what's more skill-based is rewarded more and adaptive. That's true, yes. Okay. And and to what extent do you think knowledge of the game and knowledge of maybe the card pool is also rewardable and adaptive? A lot of people seem to think of adaptive as, oh, it's decided by a chain bid. But really it isn't. You're, you're really just playing two or three Keyforge games and you just want to win the Keyforge games. And... At least one of the games, depending on whether you're sealed or archon, at least one of the first two games, you'll be playing with a deck that isn't yours or that you haven't played over 100 games with. So you will have to know how... Or you'll have to have some sort of exposure to uh, the cards in that deck, or at least it will help to have exposure to the cards in that deck. Sure. There we have it, everyone. We asked the question, is Keyforge a luck-based or a skill-based game? And the answer is both. And different in different ways across different formats. A complex answer, but I think we probably dispelled that myth that maybe the most skillful players can make Voltor top cuts consistently and every single time with Keyforge in part due to the real complexity of these luck and skill-based conundrums that they're facing constantly. So thanks, James, for coming on and having this conversation with us. Thanks for having me. We've also spoken about some ways in which you can mitigate the, the luck in your gameplay by knowing the card pool, having a good understanding of that card pool, knowing the chances that you're going to see different things in your opponent's decks in a sealed environment, and taking and valuing consistency in decks either through the efficiency of how it deals with the hand management or the efficiency of board management so that is our discussion on luck in keyforge but what thoughts do you guys have on luck in keyforge i'm sure that there are many many aspects of this that we have not touched in fact we have barely scratched the surface of this issue so i'm excited to to hear what you guys think about this and james where can people find you to talk to you about this issue so i'm fairly active on the sanctimonious discord so my name there is flibber hashtag 3141 okay okay please do let us know what you've liked in this podcast and what you'd maybe like to see more of or less of in future and you can find our merch on teespring via the link below where you can purchase one of our glorious hoodies and i mean glorious it not just survives the wash but seems to thrive in it and if you too would like to join the call of discovery family put your weird and wonderful decks into the spotlight and really help us take call of discovery to new heights then you can join our patreon only discord today by clicking the link below to patreon you can find us in all the usual places, the socials. We are at Call of Discovery. And you can email us questions at discoverkeyforge at gmail.com. Do be sure to tune in to our next episode, which will be our first of the Dexploration episodes. And if you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, 
please do help them to discover it. Thank you very much. <laughs>